Steve. Well, friends, here we are together, another Sunday, another chance to take communion together, and another chance for us to be in each other's lives in this day and age where everything is so separated and fragmented and increasingly divided and revealing the divides that are there for us to be able to share in time with each other and share in time um, in the word, in worship, and then people to 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 sit at Jesus' table with him and take communion. It's such a gift. So friends, I'm glad to be with you all this communion Sunday. Um, just really quickly, if you're just joining us for the first time um, or first time in a while or listening online, um, we are five weeks into our series on mending life, and it's based on Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. And over the past uh, five weeks, we've seen all these different ways that God wants to be about the work of mending like the rips and the tears in our world, whether it's mending our preconceived ideas about how God works or mending our relationship to culture or mending our idea of goodness. Um, the best part of the series is not just that we get to see God at work in some aspect of our life together, but that we're invited to join God in that work, that work of transformation in our world, in us and around us. So um, that's where we've that's where we've been. <laughs> we've been slowly working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be in Chapter Five. I'm um, right at the end of Chapter Five today. We'll get there in just a second. But um, as some of you might know. Last week was our denomination's annual midwinter retreat for clergy in our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. As one of my friends put it, it's like it's like summer camp for pastors in the middle of winter. Um, although this year, Pastor Cheryl and I did not go to the mainland. Um, we did spend some time away on island. I spent some time away so I could just be immersed in all the sessions every day. They were like starting at five in the morning. It's <laughs> so like five at night. It was long days, but so good. Um, and when the week was over, I was glad to go back home too and you know, hug the kiddos and pet the cats and hang out with my husband, Dan, and get caught up with emails and meetings. But I was not glad at the nasty surprise that waited me on Wellspring's Facebook page. Monday evening this week, I found post after post, really angry, kind of scary ones. All from the same day, um, many of them mentioning me, um, and and I, I looked at the person, I, I I clicked on it, I looked at their their name, their face. I've never seen them before, never never heard the name before. I'm like, apparently I have an enemy I've never seen, never heard of, never met. So this week was quite the week. I spent time reaching out for denominational support. We had to take screenshots of all the comments as proof of harassment, notified our church council chair, who's Darren. I wrote to fellow clergy for advice. And friends, when I opened up the passage, where we are in the Sermon on the Mount to look at today to see what we're learning from, it was on enemies. <laughs> I was not, I was like, what? Lord, on this week when it's already kind of hard and I'm feeling raw. I get to talk about how to treat our enemies. It felt really challenging and poignant and very real to me. So friends, um, my hope for us today, as we go through this passage today, um, whether or not you have an enemy that will be able to hear what the spirit has for us. So I just wanted to take us a moment and just reflect, reflect maybe um, on more recent events in our life, or even if you wanna cast your eye, you know, a little bit more uh, long-term vision. Um, in the past. And I just want to ask you, do you know what it's like 
to have an enemy? Do you know what it's like to have someone be against you? Maybe it's because of something you did or didn't do. Maybe it's because of something your enemy thinks you did. Maybe, like me on Facebook, you have an enemy just because of someone else you're friends with. Someone is against you because you're friends with their sworn enemy and they don't like it. Maybe for you the answer is no, you have no enemies. If so, lucky you. <laughs> for many years, actually, when I read this passage in scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, I would feel like it just didn't apply to me. I'm like, yeah, I don't really have any enemies. But if I were being really honest, if I had to take a step back, even then, I would have to say there were still people in my life, if I came upon them at the store or saw them at the gym, I wouldn't want to say hi to, people I'd want to avoid. There were other people in my mind that I would keep going back to these situations and I would have all these things I'd want to say to them. I wish I could see them again and I would say this. The last thing I said to them, I didn't really like, I wish I said this. So even though I thought I didn't have enemies, here I am avoiding people and then also like wishing I could give other people a piece of my mind. So friends, I think whether a person immediately comes to mind as we go through this text today, whether you have to dig a little deeper, know that I think there is something Holy Spirit has for each one of us, whether we have a really obvious enemy or our enemies are a little bit more underneath the surface, more of a sneaky enemy, um, perhaps one that we're not aware of. So to give you some context right here as we get ready to jump into the text, the Sermon on the Mount um, takes place towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and I'm going to try to share my screen for you. Here we are in Mending Life, um, our series. Okay, so here we go. Let me skip ahead takes place toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was still really popular. Um, at the end of Matthew 4.25, which is right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, it tells us that large crowds were following Jesus from Galilee to Capolis, which is 10 cities. And it's over here. I don't think you can see my, um, I don't think you can see my little cursor. So what I try to do is I try to highlight these areas for you. It's Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. I did a little yellow highlighter there. Do you see that? It's really hard to read. Um, so these are all the areas that people were flocking to see Jesus from. So it would be a really diverse crowd. There might even be people there who are enemies with each other or their groups were enemies and they are here in this space together. And Jesus, traditionally, he went up on a mountain to teach and you know, some of these teachings are actually just sort of Jesus' best of, um, just sort of com compiled together. But we know Jesus was teaching a large crowd of people. And scripture tells us he went up on the mountain. Um, we're not actually sure exactly what mountain it was, but they were by the Sea of Galilee. And so it's fair to say that they were on this little mountain right here. Um, there's this little church called Church of the Beatitudes that's there. Traditionally, some people have said it's there. If those of you that have visited Israel, you might have actually been to this church. And this apparently is the panoramic view from the top which is beautiful, isn't it? I'm like, oh, if Jesus was preaching there, that's lovely. Um, so we don't know for sure, but Jesus might have been at this location or one like it when he went up on a little hillside to preach this uh, large, very diverse group of people. And where we are in our passage today is Jesus teaching. Um, we're going to pick it up in Matthew 5, 38. Jesus says, you know that you have been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to try to get even with the person who has done something to you. When someone slaps your right cheek, turn and let that person slap your other cheek. If someone sues you for your shirt, give up your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. 
When people ask you for something, give it to them. When they want to borrow money, lend it to them. You've heard people say, love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for anyone who mistreats you. Then you will be acting like your father in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both good and bad people, and he sends rain for the ones who do right and for the ones who do wrong. If you love only those people who love you, will God reward you for that? Even tax collectors love their friends. If you greet only your friends, what's so great about that? Don't even unbelievers do that? But you must always act like your father in heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in, in the words that we just read, now there's a lot of them they're really good we're going to be going back and reading through them so it felt like it was fast we'll go back again don't worry in those words we just read um, jesus doesn't promise that we won't have enemies he's not giving us strategies for how to turn our enemies into friends so this passage isn't about mending our relationships with our enemies so they'll never hurt us again but instead this passage is showing us how to mend how we relate to our enemies. How do men, I'm calling it our posture towards our enemies. And to go, first of all, number one in your notes, a Jesus mended posture towards enemies. Number one, challenges traditions that fall short of Jesus' way. So as we look at this passage, we're looking at a Jesus mended posture towards enemies, because that's what Jesus is teaching here. He's not teaching us how to get rid of our enemies, but rather how to relate to them. Number one in your notes, a Jesus mended posture towards enemies challenges traditions that fall short of Jesus' way. Now, when Jesus begins this teaching in the section, he begins the teaching with the phrase, you know, you have been taught. It's a phrase Jesus uses throughout this sermon, not just here. He'll say, you know, you've been taught or you've heard it said. And friends, just as Jesus' audience on the mountain had all been taught something about how to relate to enemies, right? They're not just coming to Jesus as a blank slate. You and I have been taught something about relating to enemies too. I grew up with some guy friends who were taught by their dads how to win in a fist fight. So if they were ever confronted by their enemy, they could beat them up first. <laughs> Any of you were raised parents who taught you how to, how to win in a fight? Um, although I was raised in the Philippines, I am part Italian, so I learned from the Godfather. <laughs> I learned, I think it's Michael Corleone uh, from the Godfather. I think that's Al Pacino, right? He taught me that you're supposed to keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, right? You better protect yourself if you know their plans. So, so all of us, we don't come to Jesus with a blank slate, right? We come already having teaching, already having heard things say about how to relate to enemies. And so here we go. Jesus begins with a passage, you know you have been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what you've been told. But I tell you not to try and get even with a person who has done something to you. Now, in this passage, Jesus is um, directly quoting from the book of Leviticus. Now, back when God liberated the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, they had to endure, they had they'd endured so many years of violence at the hands of Pharaoh's regime. So when it was time for them to establish the laws of their new nation, um, God put limits in place. So there would be a boundary on how much you could do to someone who hurt you. Right, so Jesus is quoting Leviticus here. This was a boundary making law. You, you can, you, the one tooth for one tooth, not two, two teeth for one tooth, <laughs> two tooths for one tooth, right? God was setting limits on retaliating action. You can't keep retaliating and retaliating and retaliating. 
So God was setting boundaries, setting boundaries here. But over the millennia, right, because it's been a long time, right, when Jesus is speaking here, it had been a long time since God had given um, that, that law to Israel right, after they were freed from slavery. Instead of letting the scripture over time sort of speak into limiting the amount of pain and damage you can inflict, into limiting retaliating action, people were using the scripture as permission for violent action. And so Jesus challenges this tradition. You've heard it said this, but I say to you, do not repay an evil person in kind. So if I trolled my Facebook enemy like they trolled me, would I be solving anything? No, although sometimes I think I might feel a little better, but no, no, I wouldn't. Because <laughs> retaliating in kind is not the Jesus-mended way of approaching our enemies. So at the same time, right, Jesus is saying, don't retaliate in kind. Jesus also, let me just tell you what he isn't saying. Jesus isn't saying you're supposed to be a doormat either. And sometimes our traditions, especially as Christians, we've kind of gotten this part wrong. Right in this passage uh, that I read to you earlier, this passage in scripture, I used a translation, the um, CEV, and it interprets verse 39 as do not repay an evil person in kind. But if you're following along in your Bibles, if you turn to Mark chapter 5, verse 38 onward, and you're you know, on your Bible app, you're reading from the NIV, the King James Version, whatever you're reading from, it will probably have Jesus translated as saying, do not resist an evil person. How many of you, your translations say that? Just curious. I know mine did when I opened my NIV Bible earlier this week. Yeah. Now let's just think about that for a second. Does Jesus really teach not to resist an evildoer? Or in the King James Version, do not resist evil. They don't even put evildoer on there. If I'm walking down the street in Chinatown and an elderly grandmother is being violently mocked, does that mean I shouldn't do anything because I don't want to resist the evil person? What about all the stories of resistance in scripture, right? Starting with the midwives, Shipra and Pua in Exodus 1. They refused to kill the Hebrew babies ordered by Pharaoh, right? The most powerful leader in their land. And scripture tells us that God blessed them for their, resist, their resistance to that evil man. God blessed them and counted it as obedience to God. I won't even, I won't even go through the rest of the Old Testament. I'll just stop at Exodus because there's just too many stories. But like, let's get to the New Testament. Didn't Joseph resist the plans of Herod when he fled to Egypt and took his family with him so Jesus' life could be spared? This is earlier in Matthew 2. Didn't Jesus resist Pilate when he refused with his life hanging in his balance to answer Pilate's questions? Didn't Peter and the other apostles in the book of Acts resist the religious and political leaders of their day when they said, we must obey God, not man? And they went on preaching and healing even though they were forbidden to do so. Did Jesus really teach? Do not resist an evil person? I would say no. Let me go back to my screen. Here we have that word in the Greek, that word that is sometimes translated as resist, is the word, here we go. I think it's pulled up on your screen. Yes, anthistemi, anthistemi in the Greek. And it's a word often used in the time of Jesus to describe military action. Okay, this is a word most often used to describe a violent reaction used by military. Jesus is not against all forms of resistance related to evil, just violent kinds. See, nonviolent resistance practiced by many people of faith 
over many different kinds of evil over the years can be traced right back to Jesus' own self and teaching. But just as the people of Jesus' day had taken words of their scripture and twisted them to mean something slightly different, so too we have taken the words of Jesus, sometimes poorly translated, do not resist an evildoer. And we've translated and used them as support to do really terrible things, like tell women they need to stay in abusive relationships with the spouse because they're not supposed to resist an evildoer. There's so many times, even throughout the last couple hundred years, that we Christians and we evangelicals have used this phrase in ways that have not honored God or the vulnerable. So this is not teaching a kind of doormat theology because Jesus, Jesus honored people and treated them with dignity, especially the vulnerable. The people he had the harshest words for were the people with privilege and power and religious leaders uh, and pastors like myself. Those were the ones Jesus had pretty harsh words for. You're, you're just a, a person going through hard times as vulnerable, um, person caught in sin. Jesus had quite a different posture towards them. So friends, if we want to have a Jesus-minded posture towards our enemies, Sometimes we might need to challenge what we've heard that doesn't align with the Jesus way. And Jesus does this actually a little bit later than in verse 44. I don't know if you have your Bible with you or your Bible app, but if you go ahead and, and look, um, once again, Jesus says, instead of saying, you've heard it said, that's how he begins the passage. In the middle of the passage, he goes, you have heard people say, love your friends and hate your enemies. This is just another example of how people of Jesus's day had taken you know, the words of scripture, love your neighbor. That's a great word. But then they added, well, if love your neighbor is true, then hate your enemy must be true. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not right. You need to love your neighbors and your enemies. And sometimes friends in our own world, we do sort of the same thing that people of religious day did, right? We'll, we'll kind of twist around the word to kind of justify ways of being that are hurtful and immature. For example, like, have you ever heard the phrase, and I've used this phrase before, let me just say, I totally have. Have you ever heard the phrase, love the sinner, but hate the sin? I've heard it. It doesn't sound too bad at first glance, but over the years, I've seen it really used as a license to mistreat people we don't like. I've seen it happen firsthand. I've seen people use this as an excuse to treat people they consider their enemy, whether due to their lifestyle or orientation or their situation in life, to treat them poorly. Well, I love them, but I, I don't love what they do. Therefore, I'm going to love them with a very harsh love. <laughs> like, do they know you're loving them? <laughs> they don't know you're loving them, then maybe not you're loving them. So sometimes we have these we have these traditions that we have, right? And sometimes they're like partially based in scripture. And I think if, if we were to look at scripture, we would totally see lots of scripture uh, that describe loving the sinner. I think we'd be hard pressed to find a clear command to hate sinners sin. But you know what we could find? I'm sure we could find something that talks about hating our own sin. Maybe we should change that phrase around to love the sin or hate your own sin. But whatever, whatever tradition you've been brought up with, um, whatever traditions or things you've heard about relating to enemies, if we're going to have a Jesus-mended posture towards enemies, a Jesus-mended way of relating to them. We first need to challenge um, what simply isn't of God, challenge what isn't the way of Jesus, um, and let that go. Um, number two in your notes, uh, moving on to number two, a Jesus-mended posture towards enemies leaves space for transformation. 
Jesus mended posture towards enemies. Yes, challenges ways, um, challenges traditions that are not um, Jesus' best way. And it also leaves space for transformation. Let's go ahead and look at verses 38 through 41. Jesus is speaking here. You know you have been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to try and get even with a person who has done something to you. When someone slaps your right cheek, turn and let that person slap your other cheek. If someone sues you for your shirt, give up your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. So far, what we've seen in the text, there's two common responses to enemies. These are two common responses to enemies that the text is not teaching us. The first is a violent, you know, retaliation response. The second one is passive acceptance. So neither of those two things are being taught. And it's kind of hard because we're like, I don't know, that kind of looks like passive acceptance, right? Isn't Jesus saying, yeah, go the extra mile. Yes, you hit me on one cheek, you can hit me on the other. And uh, take my clothes, sure. You, you know, here's my wardrobe, I'm going to give you more. And yet, um, there's actually teaching here that shows if we really dig into what the text is saying and look at the context of Jesus' day, a third way will emerge. So Jesus is offering a third way here, and he gives three examples of what this third way looks like. And friends, this third way creates room for transformation. And the person who is acting out, you know, being the enemy, the person who is the recipient. It creates transformation for not just the victim, but also the aggressor. So we're going to look at these three things. And this, friends, is where I just like totally beg your patience, because normally, normally I'm preaching, uh, we tend to be a little less of Bible study, and we're like, here's what you need to know. Here's stories of how we see God at work in the world with it. And here's maybe a couple jokes so you don't get too bored. And we wrap it all together. And here's your message for the day. Friends, I don't have that today. What I have is just some really good teaching that's going to require us to kind of like put our thinking caps on and dive into the text. So do I have your permission? Is it okay to do that? Okay, I see a couple. Yeah, Cheryl, I see you. Okay. Um, it's funny the way my computer's set up. I can see like four, four little like people's faces, and I. <laughs> Yay! I'm glad Cheryl's on there. Um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna go for this. Here we go. Three ways of relating to enemies demonstrated in three examples Jesus gives us. And this shows us Jesus' third way, right? This shows us where there's room for transformation. Okay, so the first one is turning your face to show the left cheek. The second one is giving up your piece of clothing in a court of law. The third one is carrying a Roman soldier's pack a second mile. Woo! Okay, we're going to dive into these. You ready? First one, turning your face to show the left cheek. So here we go. I'm going to stop sharing so I can see more of your faces. Here we go. Now, Jesus lived in a world where the right hand was associated with certain tasks and the left hand with others. So New Testament scholars, they let us know the left hand, it was used primarily for like unclean bodily tasks, right? So even to like gesture with the left hand in a religious community at Qumran, like if I were in a gesture with a hand, um, I would, I could get a penalty of 10 days of penance because you just don't do that with your left hand. Do you know Roman soldiers actually fought with their right hand? If you were left-handed, you, you had to learn to be ambidextrous pretty quickly. So every, this is done with your right hand. If you were going to hit someone, you'd hit them with your right hand. That's just the way it was. Now, I want you to imagine with me you're in boxing class, okay? So wherever you're sitting or standing, I just want you to kind of get in a comfortable position. Get your hands out in front of you. Are you doing that? Okay, okay, here we go. 
because this is a little tricky unless you can visualize it. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any video that showed it. And I thought about like maybe dragging one of my children with me to come to church and be part of the sermon. And I thought, oh my goodness, my poor children, I can't do that to them. And I definitely don't want to pantomime hitting them. So instead, we're going to all do this together, okay? Why do you imagine your boxing class? And you have a partner to spar with. They're standing right in front of you, right? You're eye to eye. You got your boxing gloves on. And it's your turn. And you're going to take a, a jab with your right hand. And you're going to hit them in the face with your glove, okay? So now, and they're going to they're let you do it, right? You're not going to hit very hard. You ready for this? So take your right hand out. They're standing right in front of you, you know? And you hit them, and you hit them in the side of their face. Friends, what side of their face does it naturally land when you do that? The left side. It lands on the left side of their face. Now, wait a minute. What does our text say? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your other also. Jesus is not describing someone being punched here. He's describing a slap. If you're using your right hand, remember, if you were to hit someone, you're going to hit them with your right hand. The only way to hit someone on the right side of the face with your right hand was to do a backhanded slap. Can you imagine that? Pretend that you're giving like a backhanded slap now. Not to a real person. We do not want to be the aggressor. If you're going to give a backhanded slap to someone, that was a way for your right hand to hit the right side of their face. Okay? To kind of visualize that with me, it's really hard to picture unless you're kind of like acting it out. Okay. So now this was done all the time, this sort of backhanded slap. This was done all the time in the Roman Empire as a way of enforcing social codes from those people who had more power to those people who had less power. It was kind of a way of keeping people who weren't in your station of life down. So um, masters would do this with slaves. Husbands would do this with wives. Parents would do this to children. Romans would do this to Jews. It was sort of the socially acceptable way of keeping people, you know, in their place. And the, the only socially acceptable response was to sort of like cower in shame, right? You wouldn't be allowed to hit back. I mean, if you did, it could go very badly, right? It could You could even, depending, right, if you were a slave hitting a master, you know, even a child hitting a parent, hitting a father, um, it, you could be flogged, could become a death sentence. And if, lest you think I'm exaggerating, you know, look up the Roman practice of patria potestis. Like fathers literally had the right of life and death over their children and the right to inflict capital punishment. So in this situation right here, Jesus invite, is inviting this person being slapped, this person being backhanded to turn the other cheek. That means putting the left side of their face forward. So they've just been backhanded. Now they turn like this. Friends, this is shocking and important because you would only strike a peer with your fist. There is no way to slap someone with your right hand on the left side of their face. You just can't do it. The only way to do it is to hit them. This is how equals would fight. Roman to Roman in the beer hall, in the ring from slave to slave, children fighting with each other on the street, equals would fight with a fist. Can you imagine the scene with me? It's the middle of a busy street. A Jewish carpenter is trying to move their cart out of the way. And a Roman soldier is frustrated. He's trying to move his battalion through as he slaps a Jewish carpenter on the street who pauses. Right side of his face stinging and deliberately turns the left side to the soldier. The carpenter is saying, your first blow failed to achieve its intended effect. I deny you the right to humiliate me. 
You cannot demean me in this way. I turn my left cheek to you. If you strike again, you are forced to view me as your equal. This response would be so extremely difficult if you were the Roman soldier. Like how you can't hit the right cheek again. You can't, you know, backhand the, I mean, you can't backhand the left side of their face now being turned to you. If you get mad and bob and hit them, you're acknowledging them as your equal. You can't lord it over them anymore. If the reason why you were slapping them was to enforce your social code, now suddenly you are confronted with their humanity. It's such a cheeky way of responding unintended. It leaves space for transformation as the person doing the harm has to pause and wonder at their next move. And it affirms the agency and dignity of the person being hit. Do you see this, friends? When we read it, it all looks so like, oh yeah, just turn the other cheek. We do not know 2,000 years ago what was happening in Jesus' day. This is why it's important that sometimes we do deep dives. Okay, second, second thing. Like an example Jesus gives. Do you remember it was giving away your second piece of clothing? Here in this passage in Matthew, Jesus says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give up your coat as well. Um, Luke also is uh, provides a, um, a writing of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Luke, it's actually switched. If someone sues you for your coat, give your shirt as well. So they kind of switched those two. Um, but I think the point is, is that it referred to two layers of clothing, an inner layer and an outer layer. Now, if you are poor, you might only have these two garments, your inner layer and your outer layer. And in the Greek, it doesn't actually literally say coat and shirt. It's talking about outer cloak, inner inner cloak. So now in what situation might you be sued for your clothing? Well, the only time you'd be sued for your clothing is if you were very poor and you were brought into court for not paying a loan. So if you go all the way back to Exodus 22 in Jewish law, they said um, it stated that if you, you take your neighbor's outer garment for collateral because of a loan, you'd actually have to give it back by sunset. And the idea in the law was to protect poor people so they, they couldn't be so mistreated as to not have like, you know, an extra outer garment, um, an outer garment to wrap around them in the evening time as a blanket. Because oftentimes all they would have then is their inner, you know, their inner clothes, their underclothes. So if you only had two pieces of clothing, friends, and you were sued for one of them as an outstanding payment of a loan, that means, I think we're all good at math here, you'd have one left, right? Now, this, this wasn't just a, a, you know, Jesus being hypothetical. The truth is, this happened all the time. There were so many poor people, even people to whom Jesus speaking of, people who had been cheated out of their land. Roman taxes were ridiculously high. There were plenty of people that only had these two items of clothing. Jesus says, if someone takes your garment in a court of law, give up your other garment as well. Can you imagine what Jesus is suggesting? Can you hear the gasps, the surprised comments rippling through Jesus' audience as they heard this? Maybe there's a few chuckles as people think it through. This means, friends, you would be naked. In Jewish culture, it was less of a sin to go naked as it was to look upon someone else's nakedness. Right? We see in the book of Isaiah that, that, G, that God had Isaiah walk around for something like three years naked as a sign from God to the people of Israel. It wasn't to his shame, but theirs. Noah's son, way back in the book of Genesis, is judged for looking at his dad's nakedness. Noah isn't shamed for being naked. What Jesus is advocating here is he invites this poor person to drop the only other piece of clothing they have left. Jesus is leaving space for transformation. Can you picture the scene with me? The poor man is in court. He's not 
has no collateral left for the loan. He is told to remove his, his inner clothing, which he does. And then he says, hey, take my outer cloak as well. Strips naked, walks out before his fellows, leaving the clothing to the creditor and leaves everyone else. The entire corrupt economic edifice, stark naked. Who is being shamed? Not the poor person. Friends, do you see how clever Jesus is being here? Jesus is the smartest human to ever walk this planet. Jesus invites this diverse crowd in front of him and you and I, by extension, as we hear his words, Jesus invites us to creatively respond to our enemies in such a way that who they are, how they are acting is unmasked, is revealed before themselves. Not, not a violent resistance or a passive acceptance. Jesus offers this third way that affirms the dignity of the person being harmed and leaves everyone else a chance to move towards change. It gives their enemy a chance to come to themselves. So we've done the first two examples. Now we're going to go to the third. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Often we've interpreted this to say, go the extra mile. If someone's being difficult to you, just, just keep on leaning into that. Do what you can to serve them. And that's not a bad thing to serve people at all. That's wonderful. Jesus served people. But it's not what Jesus is saying here. If a soldier forces you, this is a specific word, a specific practice that was used um, by Roman soldiers all throughout the Roman Empire. That word um, in, our, in English, in my translation, it forces you. But uh, it's this practice of, of angeria. And I think I have it in my notes, but I'm not positive to share it with you. Let me just quickly go to share. I don't, so I'm just going to have to say it. <laughs> anyway, it was it was this practice that Roman soldiers would put on people. And remember, uh, Israel was occupied land. There were armed soldiers everywhere. You had to be careful not to make a misstep. You might be flogged or worse. And Roman soldiers were given certain privileges over the populations they patrolled. And one of them was that they could force you to help them into labor for them. They could force you to carry things for them. And we actually see this being used later on in the book of Matthew as Simon of Cyrene is, is forced, is ankaria. He's forced to carry Jesus' cross for him. It's that same word in the Greek. It's a forced practice. It's a common, constant feature of their occupied life. You were on the street, you could be compelled into service by whatever Roman soldier was right there in front of you. Now, let me just tell you that this was highly unpopular. Oh my goodness, civilian populations hated this. And there's tons and tons of um, historical documents you can go back and read where you have towns like paying off the Roman Empire being like, don't march your men through here because we don't want to all be forced to carry their stuff. Like You have all these bribes being paid and then you have all these laws that then the, the, the Roman Empire has to start making because there's so much abuse of this practice that people are revolting even more. And so they're like, you know, we don't want to lose our land. So Roman soldiers, you can force people into service, but we put limits on it. And biblical studies scholars like Walter Wink um, had done some deep dives in this and discovered that a Roman soldier in the time of Jesus could conscript you to carry the pack for one mile, but only one mile. The law left it at that. So can you imagine um, the picture Jesus is describing, right? This, this, this Jewish farmer is carrying a pack for a Roman soldier. And remember, they have mile markers on the roads. 
um, because the Romans instituted mile markers. So uh, the Roman soldier comes up to the next mile marker and reluctantly stops, stops to take his pack back from the Jewish farmer who's carrying it for him. And I want you to imagine the Jewish farmer saying, oh, I'll carry it another mile. Just imagine the soldier's surprise. Why would he do that? What is he up to? Is he insulting me? Is he trying to get me disciplined for, for violating the rules of Angare? Will this farmer file a complaint, create trouble? I've never dealt with this problem before. If the soldier enjoyed you know, feeling superior to the Jewish population before, he will not enjoy it today. Imagine the absurdity of a Roman soldier pleading with a Jewish farmer, give me back my pack. <laughs> Here, once again, the person being harmed by their enemy has taken back their agency, taken their power of choice, and done so in a way that invites transformation. It's a third way. So friends, I just want to take a moment. I know that was quite a deep dive. You didn't know you were going to be going to Bible study class this morning. <laughs> Here you are. Just take a moment to pause. I invite you to ask yourself to reflect, whether it's, you know, enemies in your life, maybe even broader society, those people who vote that way or, you know, people who disagree with me on this. What might be a third way that God wants me to respond to them? What's a way when I'm confronted with my enemy that leaves space for transformation? for their own transformation and possibly for my own as well. This third way that invites respect and wholeness, what does this look like? Friends, this is the tough work. I've shown you sort of from the scriptures uh, how we can begin the wrestling of how to live it out in our lives. So please have conversations with me because I would love to hear how you're living this out because I could use a few pointers. <laughs> What is the third way? This is what we are called to wrestle with as, as we leave space for transformation. So I know we have a third point to get to, and friends, I know we're out of time. So I'm just going to read it to you so you don't feel cheated. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll quickly go through it. Let me just read it. Here we go. Number three in your notes. A Jesus-mended posture towards enemies loves gracefully the annoying people in front of you every day. A Jesus-mended posture towards enemies loves gracefully the annoying people in front of you every day. Um, and by the way, I just want to say I have no particular people in mind when I wrote this. <laughs> but from the text, let's look at the text. What does it say? When people ask you for something, this is verse 42, give it to them. When they want to borrow money, lend it to them. You've heard people say, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for anyone who mistreats you. Even tax collectors love their friends. If you greet only your friends, what's so great about that? Don't even unbelievers do that? But you must always act like your father in heaven. Friends, we don't always have large scale enemies, enemies on a large scope. Sometimes you might just have people who annoy you, who take more than they give. People who always treat you a little bit poorly. People who pretend to like you but really don't. People you'd rather not greet. Plenty to run of them going about town. In your doctor's appointment at Costco, dropping your kids off at school. In class. Friends, we are to love them anyway. And how? We begin with prayer. Praying for our enemies helps us act gracefully 
like our Father in heaven, who makes the sun rise on the good and the bad. Like our Father in heaven, who acts with so much grace, blesses us with rain, those who do right and those who do wrong. This is God's grace in action. God shows kindness to those who don't deserve it. I know in this passage, Jesus asks us to do the same. And I think this sometimes feels like just a really big ask. If you're at the point in time today when you're like, Jesus, I can't quite live into this amended version of relating to enemies. I don't really want to challenge the way I've been relating to them, uh, the traditions that I've been taught. I don't really want to leave space for transformation. I definitely can't love the annoying people in front of me every day. I don't want to pray for my enemy. If you feel like that, I get you. And honestly, acknowledging where we are is a good place to begin growing in a Jesus-minded posture towards enemies. If you're in that place where you might feel a little stuck and you're like, you know, I can maybe begin with prayer. I can do that. But loving them, I, I can't love them yet. Well, I think there's, there's one thing we can do that will help create love in our hearts. Instead of just trying to force love, right, we can't force love. But there is something we can do. And that's let God love you. Let God love you. Where am I getting that from? I just want to look right here. Verse 44, 45. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for anyone who mistreats you. Then you will be acting like your father in heaven. Friends, this means our father in heaven loves God's enemies. This means our father in heaven contends for those who mistreat God. Friends, we invite God we make space for God to love us because we have been God's enemy too. The teacher and apostle Paul writes in Colossians, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you. The only way we can love is because God first loved us. If today you can't love your enemy, instead of pausing and trying harder, why don't you ask God to fill you with God's love? Enjoy the good graces, the rain, the sun that God is sending your way. And from that, from that overflow, we can say, God, how can I live into the third way of being an enemy? What, what beliefs maybe do I need to allow you to challenge? Uh, how can I love that annoying person more? Friends, this isn't out of reach, because if you know our Heavenly Father, you are filled with love of your heavenly father. We can and will act like our father who loves all. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for being more immeasurably gracious and graceful than we can imagine. Thank you for loving us first before we knew you, knew how to love. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way, for reminding us of the full grace and love of the Father and inviting us to create spaces where there can be transformation as we relate to our enemies. Lord, all those places in us as we relate to people who we disagree with, are challenged by, are annoyed by, are people that plain out don't like us or are out to get us, help us to let you love us. And from that overflow, pray and lean in to your third way.
We ask all these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.